Hey everyone, this is Zach from the Almost Sideways podcast. Uh, I just wanted to make a note prior to this episode. In this episode, I mentioned that Conrad Hall, the cinematographer, uh, did not win any Oscars prior to his 1999 win for American Beauty. And uh, I just want to note that I was wrong in that fact, as Todd pointed out. So as you're listening to this podcast, just remember anytime I mention that, that uh, I am an idiot and uh, yeah, we're good to go. Uh, Conrad Hall won Best Cinematography in 1969 for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. With that out of the way, enjoy today's podcast. Go, no, go for lunch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was going to say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. We are six months into 2019. We are halfway through the year already. And we're going to be looking at halfway through the year and be, uh, be looking at the, our mid-year report this year. Uh, for this year, this last year of the 2010s. And... We're going to be looking at the 20th anniversary of the film that rounded out the 1990s in our deep dive. Uh, Welcome back to the Almost Sideways Podcast. My name is Terry Plucknett, and I have uh, Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz with me as always. Uh, Todd, I'm going to go to you first. What has been your biggest takeaway uh, from 2019 in terms of movies so far? Well, personally... uh like four or five of the movies I predicted to be Oscar contenders have already been released and forgotten on streaming services, so that's kind of depressing. But also kind of good that we got to see them before like a limited release in December or something like that. But it's not the best year ever, but there are some really good movies that I think have a shot at my year in top ten list. So I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't think it's it's t- as bad as last year, but I mean, it's been kind of sparse so far. All right. Zach, what is what has been your biggest takeaway? Uh, well, uh, my biggest takeaway. First of all, are we doing the what are we drinking segment? We just. Oh yeah, we'll 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 get to okay. that in a second. We'll, we'll, we'll get, get to, to that, that in a second. second. Okay, okay. We'll we'll uh we'll we'll make this the lead into that because we can't forget that. Uh, oh, of course not. But anyway, um, I completely disagree with Todd. I think this year sucks. Uh, I I really have struggled. You know, we're gonna do a, a mid year report. It, I've really struggled to find films that I like, and the ones that I've liked have mostly been uh, streaming for streaming platforms. So I don't think it's such a great year for theatrical movie going, unless you're a Marvel uh, MCU fan. And um, yeah, my biggest takeaway is that uh, it, it, just just finding a decent, totally okay, somewhat enjoyable movie at a movie theater has become a rarity. I would agree with that. I've had trouble finding some some good movies so far this year. One of the things that uh, I would say is my biggest takeaway, I'm fascinated by uh, what's going on with the box office and how um, it feels like the tides are changing in in cinema where, you know, unless you are a, a, a heavy blockbuster that is a remake, a reboot, a superhero movie or something like that, uh, basically, unless you're made by Disney, uh, you're not going to make any money and you're not going to really have a theatrical run at all. And Disney was supposed to rule this year and they've had several disappointments box office wise. And people are starting to react to it. And I, I saw even today uh, AMC has uh, announced that they're going to be doing like a 
like a AMC spotlight on some some films that are not the typical blockbusters to make sure that they get seen and they get a good theatrical run. But uh, that's been my biggest takeaway and what I'm fascinated by and how I'm really interested to see how the how the rest of the year shapes out is what happens with this uh, with this uh, box office and how it's it looks like it's shifting, but also there's some there's some pullback from from it as well. Yeah, I you know, I think we're living in a culture now where people are more excited to watch trailers to new movies than the actual movies themselves. Like when the trailer for Avengers Endgame came out and, you know, more recently the trailer for uh, uh, the Joker movie. I mean, everyone was like so pumped and excited for those. The actual like quality of the movie almost seems like an afterthought. But I don't know, maybe that's just sort of an observation. So the trailer making, filmmaking experience is just as important as the actual movie. Oh, I experience. think it's actually it's it, at, with the younger generation especially. I think it's become more important. Like people react to these trailers. Like our good friend Adam Daly uh, from Almost Daily Live, uh, or Adam Adam Daly Live, <laughs> <laughs> Almost Daily Live. Um, That'll be the new incarnation. <laughs> I mean, he's doing all these wonderful videos, but they're like reactions to trailers, you know? And he gets all these hits because people want to see reactions to trailers. And, uh, you know, we don't quite get the hits because we're not reacting to trailers. Maybe that should be our, our, our new segment, reaction, fan reaction to trailers. Get us more hits. A, a perfect example of that is how the trailer for the Sonic the Hedgehog movie literally made it get pushed back an entire year because of the reaction to the trailer they had to go back and remake the movie, basically. Yeah. Yeah, people, people right. were not satisfied with the way that Sonic looked, right? It was the, the, exactly. the arms and the legs and... The the, the, of... the, the, te- the face, the teeth, yep. the, the eyes, all sorts of stuff. But the internet trolls um, that respond to those videos are just ones that don't go to the movies and they just download it anyway and don't actually spend the money. So I don't think they deserve to be mentioned even. But it's definitely a part of what's going on, too. It's, yeah, it's really interesting. Okay, well, we'll get into our our actual mid-year report here in a second. We're going to do a top five of the year so far and our bottom one. But, of course, before we do that, Zach, since you were jumping the gun a little bit here, what are you drinking? I'm drinking out of Lawrence, Kansas. Free State Brewing Company, the first legal brewery in Kansas, opened in 1989. The Storm Chaser IPA. Now, normally I'm a fan of the Copperhead or the Ad Astra, but recently in the wonderful state of Kansas, our blue laws have been eliminated, so we are now allowed to sell beer in supermarkets, and this was the first time since moving here I've ever bought beer at a supermarket. It was a historic moment. I wanted Copperhead, but uh, I'll settle for Storm Chaser. Cheers. Now you ha- you're gonna have to drink the Ad Astra when we review Ad Astra eventually, because that's an inevitability, right? Of course. Yeah. Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Todd, what are you drinking? I have some wonderful Winchester Extra Smooth Bourbon Whiskey. I got it from Total Wine, and it is fantastic. And it's only like thirty dollars for a big bottle. See, so so in Lawrence, they they just got beer in the supermarkets. Correct. And in Federal Way, they have entire warehouses of of a store like a Costco of liquor, and 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 that's where Todd gets all his, all his stuff. Wow. So well, we it's have fantastic. We have drive-through liquor, which is like you know white trash, but 
<laughs> Still doesn't really compare. Uh, wow. So, so for me, I have um, I have Deschutes Brewery uh, in Portland. Actually, wait, Bend. It's in Bend, but it's one of the more famous uh, Oregon breweries. I have their limited release Twilight Summer Ale. And this is one that uh, that I've had before. I uh, haven't had it on the podcast, but I had to get it again. Usually I try something new, but this one is just good, so I had to get it uh, a second time. So, cheers. Some excellent choices. I'm glad we're mm-hmm. branching out. Yes. Ever so slightly. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for listening. Make sure that you subscribe, rate, review on iTunes so we can uh, we can be found by more people, we can be heard by more people. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. And uh, and uh, you can find us almostsideways.com where we have all of our uh, all of our movie ratings and all of our uh, all of our articles, all of our podcasts are uh, are there as well. So, we're going to get into our uh, our mid-year report here, but first as I'm pulling it up, uh, we had a poll that went out to uh, to all of you listeners uh, over the last week. On our last podcast, we were doing the Mount Rushmore of Pixar movies and determining what are the, the four benchmark Pixar films that would go on a Mount Rushmore. And we each pick one that's a non-negotiable, and we were disagreeing on what would be the fourth. So when we went through that, Zach chose Inside Out. I chose Wally, Todd chose Toy Story, and we were able to narrow our fourth choice down to three. It was either going to be Up, Coco, or Finding Nemo. And uh, and Zach and I both really love Coco. Todd doesn't. Uh, Todd and I really both love Up, and Zach doesn't. And all three of us are okay with Coco. Are, are okay with Finding Nemo, so we decided to throw that one on there as well. Uh, so, our results of our of our poll here, we had a total of thirty four votes on our poll, which I, I was actually yeah, it, it wasn't impressive. too bad. It wasn't too bad. Most of that was in like the first twelve hours I posted. I was hoping it would keep growing, and it didn't. But uh, in third place with twenty four percent was Coco. There we go. In in second place with thirty five percent was up. So first place forty one percent. Finding Nemo takes the fourth spot on our Mount Rushmore. The one that none of us really love, but none of us really hate, ends up being the one that uh, that ends up on Mount Rushmore. Um, and honestly, if if you if you think about it. If we had actually sat here and debated for a little while longer, it was going to end up being Finding Nemo because it was the one thing none of us were going to object to. So, uh, so yeah, our Mount Rushmore of Pixar. Thank you for uh, for wa- um, winding it out for us. We have Inside Out, Wally, Toy Story, and Finding Nemo. That was a lot of fun. We're gonna have to do some more uh, some more fan polls like that when we get to get to other uh, other. Uh, not Rushmore. See, I was thinking just two the Andrew opposite. Stanton movies. What? There are two Andrew Stanton movies in there. Two Andrew Stanton movies. I was thinking just the opposite, Terry. No more fan polling. None of us are excited about <laughs> finding Nemo. the wrong one. <laughs> We're all meh. Who cares? It's not really that that great. I think Finding Dory is slightly better. So you know. 
Ooh, that's interesting. Okay, uh, well let's uh, let's move on from that and get into our mid year uh, our mid year report. So uh, I'm gonna start with uh, I'm gonna start with Todd on this one. So Todd, go run us through your top five so far this year, and then give us your bottom one. Okay, so my number five, uh, I have Olivia Wilde's book Smart, uh, which is basically the female super bad. It's it's about two friends played by Beanie Feldstein and Caitlin Deaver, who are like two super smart high school seniors who realize that their hard work through their four years didn't really pay off because all the kids that partied all the time got into the same school, so they decide to have one like wild night of parties to make up for it. And it's got, like, shades of Juno, John Hughes, Girl Next Door, Days of Confused. It's a really kind of irresistible movie that I really liked, and the two leads are amazing. Uh, and Olivia Wilde definitely has a, a future behind the camera. Uh, number four, I have uh, the Netflix movie by Alex Lehman called Paddleton. It's, uh, it stars Mark Duplass and Ray Romano. And they're like a couple outcasts who just hang out all the time and play their game that they created called Paddleton, which actually looks kind of fun. It's got it's like racquetball, but with somehow involving a trash can. They don't really explain the rules, but it looks kind of fun. And one of them eventually gets diagnosed with cancer, so it's sort of like them making, uh, you know, making the most of the their last days together. And there's like some Wes Anderson quirkiness, but it's definitely a Mark Duplass movie, and it represents the best that Netflix can offer. It, uh, the guy's last movie was Blue Jay, and that was in my top 10 in 2016. This isn't quite that good, but it's really good. Number three, I have uh, Jordan Peele's Us, which is about a family vacation that goes horribly wrong when a doppelgangers begin terrorizing them and a bunch of crazy shit happens. Uh, the deeper you get in the movie, the more complicated it gets and the more meaning comes out. And Jordan Peele is just a crazy person. He's at the height of his Hollywood powers, and this is just a great movie. We reviewed it on the podcast. Uh, number two, we were just reviewed last week. It's Toy Story 4, directed by Josh Cooley, which is about the toys that we've come to know and love, and uh, and uh, adding a spork-turned-toy named Forky, and it's him and Woody kind of dealing with their crisis of where they belong in the world when their owner goes on a family trip, and it's something I have not stopped thinking about since, and I can't wait to revisit it. And number one, I have... A movie by S. Craig Zoller called Dragged Across Concrete. And it stars Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn as a couple of cops who get suspended when a video of their shady police tactics uh, goes viral. And they decide they're going to rob a crew of people who just robbed a bank uh, to get some money. And there's also this parallel story of a guy who just got out of prison who gets wrapped up in it somehow. And it's a sensational movie. It's basically the closest thing to Breaking Bad that I've seen in a movie in terms of rhythm and build-up and sudden violence. Zoller's films are awesome, like, and they've gotten progressively better. There's Bone Tomahawk and then Brawl in Sublock 99, and now this is just a masterpiece. It's the only four-star movie I've given this year. I think it's the best performance of Gibson and Vaughn's careers, and I it will absolutely be on my year-end top ten. And then my bottom movie of the year which is my number 40, which we reviewed on episode 42 of the podcast, is Dark Phoenix. It's just a horrible, horrible movie about Jean Grey and how she became the most emotionally unstable and most powerful mutant in the universe, and it's boring and hard to sit through, and we really tore it apart on that episode, if you want to listen to it. It was kind of awesome. All right. All right. So, Dragged Across Concrete, I, I mean... It, uh, it, like, it, it looked really awesome. I haven't seen it yet, but uh, 
why isn't getting like more attention? I mean, it, it's kind of rare for you to go out on a limb for a movie this early in the year and for you to say it's going to be on your top ten list. Like, why isn't it catching on? You think, or is it? And we're just not paying attention. Uh, I don't know. I don't think it had that big of a release. Um, uh, neither did his previous two movies. I honestly think, to me, it felt like when I watched it, I felt like it was like the place beyond the pines again, where it's like this is a movie from the first half of the year that I really loved, that is going to be on my top ten, that nobody else is really going to pay attention to because they didn't see it in the theater. I mean, it could get eventually a good run on streaming or something, but I I honestly only know a few people that have seen it. So. And you said you've seen 40 movies on the year so far, Todd? Yes, 40. All right. Zach, how many have you seen on the year? I've seen uh, 23. 23 okay so why don't you give uh give us your uh top five and bottom one okay so number five like i said earlier this has been a pretty weak year for me um so i apologize if some of these films are not that great uh number five is harmony kareen's the beach bum which i actually saw a preview screening for back in october i'm assuming they didn't change too much from it uh, of it when they released it wide um it tells the story of a rebellious stoner named moondog who uh kind of lives off uh his uh wife uh moondog's played by matthew mcconaughey his wife is played by Ella fisher and uh she kind of meets an untimely departure and he has to sort of um fend for himself and sort of uh uh encounter the world um alone and uh it's it's basically a stoner comedy with some great uh side performances by snoop dogg zach efron jonah hill and uh probably most memorably martin lawrence as a uh dolphin trainer no actually what is he again he's like a he operates a boat but anyway um really funny movie i don't know why it didn't get better reviews it's a total uh harmony kareen movie i love harmony kareen um even though i don't love his movies necessarily but i think him as an artist is an interesting person so uh don't uh believe the the bad the bad reviews when i went to the test screening the whole audience hated it i'm not really sure why i thought it was pretty hilarious so as far as stoner comedies go um you could do a lot worse um, number four is uh, a movie that I had very, very high on my most anticipated list. Um, I'm technically calling it a 2019 movie because that's when I saw it and that's when it got its wide release in the United States. And that is Oscar Fahadi's Everybody Knows, which is, um, I think Oscar Fahadi is the, is the greatest living filmmaker. I'll see any film that he comes out with. And to see it number four on my mid-year list um, is a pretty clear indication that it's not the top of his game. Um, it, it is a fairly disappointing film, but if only if you compare it to other Fahadi films like A Separation um, and The Salesman in the past. Um, it stars Penelope Cruz and Javier Bardem as uh, one-time friends, uh, one-time lovers, and uh, they're reunited in this village for a wedding, and uh, Penelope Cruz's daughter disappears over the course of the film, and um, basically, like all Fahadi films, it's, it's sort of, they're always kind of the same structure, which is, you know, a, a significant event happens in the first 30 minutes, and the rest of the movie is spent with the characters, a bunch of characters trying to figure out what exactly happened and why it happened and this movie's no different um like i said it's not really a great movie it's not farhardy's best work it feels sometimes like a soap opera which is actually sometimes a a, a consequence of of his films but it was really entertaining and uh it had some really strong performances and uh, i like that farhardy is challenging himself by shooting it in a different country in a different culture um my third movie number three is little woods directed by nia DeCosta and starring uh, lily james and tessa thompson 
as a uh, pair of siblings who live in North Dakota in the midst of the opioid crisis and as a means to make some extra money to save their house from foreclosure. This kind of sounds like a little bit of the premise of Hell or High Water, but um, they have to uh, illegally smuggle drugs across the border. Um, it actually is kind of like a sort of female version of Hell or High Water, although they're not robbing banks. Um, it's a pretty exciting film. It's a pretty good low-key character study with really good performances by the two leads and pretty unglamorous roles. Um, the movie's kind of shot in these low dark undertones and it sort of explores this culture in North Dakota that's just ravaged with drug use and drug abuse and uh, I really like the the female relationships in the movie and that they're the most headstrong characters and um, again it's it's a pretty solid entertaining movie again I give it three stars it will not be on my best of the year list but uh, you could do a lot worse uh, for the first half of the year um, my number two and one movies of the year I've both seen in the last 24 hours, so I've not talked about them on the podcast at all. My number two movie is a documentary on Netflix called Fire the greatest party that never happened. And it's a documentary about the fire festival, the infamous fire festival in 2017 that was put on by a guy named Billy McFarland. And he basically defrauded all these uh, rich people by uh, trying to put on a, this big uh, Coachella-like concert in the Bahamas. And uh, everything that could go wrong did go wrong. I mean, the guy was a fraud and he certainly um, was um, embezzling money and doing very illegal things. But at the same time, the movie's also about how these people really worked under him and they sort of believed what he was doing in what he was doing and these are young professionals and um, it, it, the movie kind of almost feels like a Saturday Night Live sketch in a way because some of these people are really entertaining and weird some of them only go by like one name another guy's name is M. David like with an M. David so um, these are interesting characters that are kind of intriguing to watch and just seeing the whole shit show that was the Fire Festival I mean I wasn't too aware of it when it happened but it speaks a lot about, I don't know, the this culture that we're living in where YouTube creators and influencers have such a strong influence on the way that people's tastes um, materialize. And so these are basically rich people duped to a certain degree, but it was also young creative professionals who were also duped by this master manipulator, sort of like uh, the, uh, the, the Bernie Madoff of the internet generation. So really good documentary. There was also a documentary about the Fire Festival released on Hulu simultaneously. I haven't seen that one, but I, I bet it's pretty good too. And my number one movie of the year so far, which I just saw today, uh, it's a close close to a four-star film. I'm not quite sure. It's either three and a half or four stars. It is Jake Scott's American Woman, starring uh, Sienna Miller in a career best performance as a woman who, uh, she's an American woman, and her name is Deborah, and she lives in Pennsylvania. And she lives across the street from her sister, Christina Hendricks. And it's a story, of, uh, it sounds kind of like a weepy melodrama a little bit. It's about how her, uh, Santa Miller's daughter uh, disappears. And we don't really know what happens to her. And maybe she's abducted, maybe she was killed, maybe she runs away, we're not really sure. And so the movie kind of shows how this event spins uh, the Sienna, Sienna Miller's character's life into turmoil. But it, then it shows her as the kind of years go by. And uh, this event really traumatizes her, but it also awakens her and in some ways makes her stronger as a result of the resilience of the, the of the traumatic event. Um, there's some great supporting work here, uh, also by Aaron Paul, who plays a love interest, and Amy Madigan as uh, Sienna Miller's mother. Um, this is a career best performance from Sienna Miller. I would expect this film to be on my top 10 list at the end of the year, and Sienna Miller deserves an Oscar nomination for it. She is extraordinary. So this is a really cool film directed by Ridley Scott's son, uh, Jake Scott. American Woman just came out. Look for it. It's, it's uh, 
uh, an awesome, awesome movie. Really loved it. Um, and then for my worst movie of the year, uh, boy, yeah, Dark Phoenix uh, is is pretty bad. I was prepared to say it. I'm just for a little, I'll go a little bit different. I'm going to go another movie we talked about on this podcast that we just trashed, which was Brightburn, um, about uh, the alien kid who, for some reason, um, likes to kill people in his town in uh, Kansas. And even um, Todd's movie wife, Elizabeth Banks, can't save it. It's a total and unmitigated disaster. So... I think I think that was a, tr- a thrice uh, declined movie, if I remember correctly. Thrice declined, Along with yes. Dark Phoenix. Yes, it was. All right. So uh, for me, I have watched thirteen movies so far this year, um, and my top five was pretty easy to come up with because I've only given five thumbs up so far this year. Uh, so, <clears throat> and most of them I've already talked about on the podcast, so I'll kind of keep it brief. But the first one I'm going to talk about, my number five, is one that I haven't. Uh, And my number five is Anna, the uh, action thriller uh, written and directed by Luc Besson, uh, starring Sasha Luss and Helen Mirren and Luke Evans and Killian Murphy. Uh, It's a whole lot of fun. Uh, Sasha Luss, who is uh, a model-turned-actress, she's only been in two movies, this and... Um, Luc Besson's film last year, Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets, which I actually liked more than, I think, everybody. But uh, she plays this uh, this Russian girl who turns into a Russian spy uh, during the, the 80s and KGB time and, uh, and goes undercover as a, as a uh, model in Paris. And uh, it, it's it's a whole lot of fun. Uh, if you're a fan of Luc Besson's work, he's done so many good things with between The Professional and Fifth Element and Lucy and, like I said, Valerian last year. Uh, you're going to like this movie. It's got a lot of fun twists and turns in it. A few too many, but probably, but uh, it was still a fun, a fun trip to the movies. Uh, number four on my list is uh, Rocket Man, uh, the Elton John biopic uh, with Taron Egerton. He completely disappears into the role uh, and makes the movie what it is. However, it is very, very similar to Bohemian Rhapsody. So if you like Bohemian Rhapsody, you'll like Rocket Man. If you didn't like Bohemian Rhapsody, you probably won't like Rocket Man. Uh, number three on my list, Toy Story 4. We talked about it on our last podcast. I thought it was a really good movie, a solid film. However, unnecessary in the, uh, in the pantheon of Toy Story films. Uh, number two on my list is Us, uh, Jordan Peele's new film. We already talked about it. Uh, Todd mentioned it a little bit before. Uh, it it is a ride to go on on this on this movie. Uh, not quite up to uh, what Get Out was a couple years ago, uh, but Us is definitely uh, is definitely worth the watch and uh, and definitely takes you on quite the ride. And number one so far this year, I'm going Avengers Endgame. Uh, it it was it had such lofty expectations and such lofty shoes to fill uh, in in wrapping everything up that has happened in the MCU over the last 11 years, and it did it marvelously. Ha, pun intended. So, uh, uh, I, I, I loved it. It was a wonderful way to, to, uh, to wrap up that phase of the MCU, and I can't wait to see what they do next. Uh, for my bottom film, it's kind of funny. So looking at my bottom three films of the year, uh, number three is Brightburn. Number two is Dark Phoenix. Um, but number one, I we reviewed it earlier. I reviewed it earlier on the podcast. It's Polar, uh, Netflix original movie starring Mods Mikkelsen and uh, Vanessa Hudgens. It was horrible. I I don't I, it I 
it, it was one that was laughably bad. But, uh, and I don't really want to talk about it anymore. So that's my bottom one. <laughs> awesome. Weren't you threatening to make Todd watch that? If, I if was you... threatening at one point to make Todd watch it, and it still might happen. Sounds cool. Simply because it's one of the few films that I have seen that Todd hasn't. There are so few of them that it, it takes it takes something for uh, for me to find one. So well, Anna. it may end up happening at some point. Anna, yeah. Anna, it was fun. It was fun. Like I said, if you like Luc Besson, uh, it's it's definitely a, a standard Luc Besson film. Okay. So that is our mid-year report. Uh, hopefully, uh, if you haven't seen some of those movies, I know some of the movies Todd and Zach mentioned I haven't seen, so I'll have to get out and find those. But definitely look for those. Uh, either if they're still in theaters or try to find them on uh, on some streaming uh, if you can so you can catch up on some of the quality film that has come out have, over the last six months. Have either of you heard of American Woman? It's a fantastic movie. I would hi- I've heard of it. Highly, highly recommend it. No. Really? You haven't I've heard, heard of it? it and I've heard good things, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really good. Very, very much worth checking out. Okay. Well, let's move on from that now and get into our deep dive for uh, for this podcast. And that deep dive, like I said at the beginning, uh, we are about to wrap up another decade. And so we're going to go back 20 years and look at the film that uh, won Best Picture to wrap up the 90s. And that is 1999's American Beauty. Today I quit my job, and then I blackmailed my boss for almost $60,000 past these barriers. Your dad's actually kind of cute. I think he and your mother have not slept together in a long time. Shut up! You think you're the only one who's frustrated? I'm not? Well then, come on, baby, I'm ready. Welcome to America's weirdest home videos. And before we uh, even talk that much about American Beauty, we are going to do some trivia on this. Now, uh, it was my turn to uh, to host our deep dive trivia. So I have come up with a quiz here for Todd and Zach to take. Uh, and uh, we are going to have, um, have some of them, or one of them go away first, and uh, we'll do this one at a time. So I'm going to have uh, Todd, you're going to go first. So, uh, so Zach, why don't you go away, All and right. uh, you'll come back in a little bit. I always go first. You always go first? Well, you're going first this time. Okay. So I have I have 11 questions here. All right. And there are a total of, let's see here, 22 points on 11 questions. That's it's going to be good. It is a lot. We'll see how this goes. Okay. First question. This, is, uh, this, is, this question is in honor of a game that you and I used to play obsessively for, like, nights on end. So the first question is, Todd, what is the first word and the last word of this movie? <laughs> um, okay, the first word... Is it like... It's, uh, is it like they? Is he, he's saying something like, some people say or they say that... The... the the uh, you're you're wrong. It, it's it, the first word is I. You you forgot about the the opening with uh, Thora Birch uh on the on the oh, video camera. Oh yeah okay yeah. And the last yeah, I, word... I, I just can't stand it something like that. The uh. 
day. You yeah, someday, oh, someday, someday. Yeah, there you go. Well, okay, that's I'll two give words, that to you. Right? Someday is one word. I think so. You will someday, or okay. You yeah, will someday. someday. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. okay, yeah. According to the closed caption on the on the uh, DVD, it's one word. Oh. Okay. okay. Uh, number two. This one's worth two points. Uh, what two of Carolyn's gardening accessories match by no coincidence? Uh. The garden shears and her uh, gloves or something? It's her shears and her garden clogs. Oh, clogs, okay. So you get one point. Uh, next question, what two things are Carolyn's gardening secret? Uh, Eggshells and miracle Grow. Eggshells and miracle Grow. that's two points. Uh, next question, what is the first and last name of Lester's boss slash efficiency expert? Um, there are several shots of his name placard. I know. It's Brad. That is correct. I don't know. Uh, Brad Dupree. Dupree, yeah, okay. Next question, what is the mascot of Jane's High School? I don't remember. It was like a. Was it like an elephant or something? No, it's the Spartans. Spartans. Oh yeah, because of big S. That's right. Yep. Next question: When talking to a classmate about being a model, Angela gets compared to what model? Well, she says she's not like a Christy Turlington. That's what I was going for. Yep. Okay. That's the point. She's she only gets in compared. seventeen You're... once. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, what band is Lester impressed by that Ricky likes? Uh, man, I could just, I could hear him say it too. Oh, uh, Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd. Yep. Next question. What is the name of the restaurant Lester works at? Uh, Mr. Smiley's. Mr. Smiley's. Next question. What hotel do Carolyn and the King frequent? The Top Hat. Top Hat. Uh, next question. What is the year, make, and model of Lester's dream car? Uh, For three points. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> uh... Was it like a, I mean, was it the Pontiac Firebird, like 70, I don't know, mm -hmm. 71 or something? Oh, 1970. Okay. So you get two points. I didn't realize, I didn't even know that. I just knew that that's what he says at the end as one of the things that flashed before his eyes was his uncle's Firebird. <laughs> yep. Okay, and the last question, this is worth six points. American Beauty was the directorial debut for Sam Mendes. Name the six films he has directed since. Away we go. That's one. Road of Perdition, Jarhead. Two, three. Skyfall. Four. Um. Uh, Revolutionary Road, Inspector. You got all of them. Good job. All That's right. right. You I got 17 points. That. You got 17 points. Surprised you didn't ask me what 
What what street he lived on? <laughs> Robin Hood Trail. I should have. I should have. <laughs> okay. See now 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 we're going through these and I'm like you guys are looking for some of these random facts that that are going to be uh, trivia. Okay. How Todd do? Todd did pretty well. Todd did pretty well. So uh, there are eleven questions for a possible twenty two points. Okay. Uh, Todd got seventeen of the twenty two points. Oof. All right. Okay. So first question. Uh, this is in honor of a game Todd and I used to play all the time with our DVD collection. Uh, what was the first and last word of the movie? Two answers. The first word and the last word. My. You're closer than Todd was. It's I. Oh, okay. Because she, she says, it, it's Thora Bird, she says something like, I, I just oh, can't take it anymore. I was thinking about uh, Kevin Spacey. Okay, so I totally... Yeah, that's what you, I you, said, you too. For, I, yeah, okay. you, you forgot the, the scene, yeah, the, the opening scene sure, of the sure. video camera. And, um, um, and then the last word is, I think it's like, someday you will. Will? Oh. Or no? Someday you'll know? You will someday. You will someday. Uh, so okay. someday is the last word. Okay, uh, next question. Uh, what two of Carolyn's gardening accessories match by no coincidence? Uh, her the the clippers and the okay. and the, the the shoes that she's wearing. Yep, clogs. the the pruning shears and her garden clogs. That's you didn't two use points. either right word. I said it, it, it works. It works. I said next shears. question. Uh, what two things are Carolyn's gardening secret? Eggshells and um, Miracle Grow. Eggshells and Miracle Grow. That's two points. Uh, what is the first and last name of Lester's boss slash efficiency expert? Brad Dupree. Uh, that is two points. Uh, what is the mascot of Jane's High School? Spartan, which I want to talk about later. Okay. I have an interesting uh, point about that. Sorry. Next question. When talking to a classmate about being a model, Angela gets compared to what model? Christy Turlington. Yep. That ages the movie. Uh, next question. What band is Lester impressed by that Ricky likes? Pink Floyd. Correct. What is the name of the restaurant Lester works at? Mr. Smiley's. Mr. Smiley's. Uh, what hotel do Carolyn and the King frequent? Oh, the Top Hat Motel. Top Hat Motel. Uh, what is the what is the year make and model of Lester's dream car? 1970 Pontiac Firebird. For three points. 1970 Pontiac Firebird, correct. And the last question is worth six points. American Beauty was the directorial debut for Sam Mendes. Name the six films he has directed since. Oh, okay, well, Road to Perdition. That's one. Revolutionary Road. That's two. Away from her. Uh, that is not, incorrect. I'm sorry, not, not, I mean, Away We Go. My bad. Uh, you could, come on. Yeah, I knew it wasn't Away From Her. It's Away We Go. At the use I, I wouldn't count well, that. Uh, I'm like uh, come oh, on, the storm, going, the no. storm, storm chaser's going to my head. Okay, it's a little keep strong. going, keep going, okay, keep fine. going. Um, He's gonna decide after he sees if you actually tied up or not. Or <laughs> that was an honest mistake. Um, uh, Skyfall, correct. Uh, oh God, what was the most recent one? Uh, so I got four, and there's two others. Yes. Oh boy. Um, oh, Jarhead. Correct. And then I don't know. I don't know the last one. I give up. Last one is the newest Bond yeah. film, Spectre. Spectre. Okay. Yeah. I never he saw. Still it. won. Either he's, way. He's, he won eighteen to seventeen. Sweet. If I don't count away from her, 
he won 18 I don't, to 17. I don't think think you should count the garden shears and the clogs. He didn't say either word. I said you clogs. Shoes and clippers. I said clogs though. After a second. No, you didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did. yeah he did. He did. Well, he did. I'm going with like it. I'm going with it. All right. So so Zach wins on that. Those are. I thought those were some good questions. You guys. You guys did really well on that quiz too. I think it reflects how much we've seen this movie. <clears throat> yeah. Yes, I think. I think you're right. I think you're right. Okay. It's the first in three. We haven't said. Uh, we haven't asked what the name of the street is for something. I should. I know. Todd. Todd was he, saying. I should have said. What he lives street on Robin Hood Trail, the house with the red door. Eight three eight. Oh gosh. Okay. All right, so Zach, since you won trivia, I'm going to go to you first. Tell us what American Beauty is all about and your experience with this film. Well, American Beauty is one of the iconic movies of the late 90s, early 2000s, because it did have a pretty long shelf life on VHS and DVD and cable network. Uh, you know, it's it's a movie that is about a lot of things. It's about uh, suburbia. It's about midlife crisis. It's about pedophilia. It's about adultery and drugs and um, sexuality and uh, uh, impending death. You know, one of the first things we learn about the movie is that the lead character, Lester Burnham, is going to die within a year in this kind of Sunset Boulevard-esque narration he gives at the beginning of the movie. So we're sort of thinking like, oh, okay, well, this is going to be some kind of murder mystery, right? Who who kills him? And the movie does sort of develop in, in that respect a little bit because there are a lot of uh, potential suspects in it. But really, um, it's, it's, it's a hybrid of comedy, drama, romance. Uh, there's some, certainly some softcore erotic components to it. Um, but really, at its core, it's about the Kevin Spacey character of Lester Burnham in an iconic Academy Award-winning performance, um, a middle-aged 42-year-old loser who drops his suitcase as he goes to the car on, on his way to work, and he works a dead-end job. And then uh, after one night of getting stoned at a party and uh, fantasizing about uh, his teenage daughter's best friend, um, he decides to, he, he's not going to put up with it put up with it anymore and uh he starts his uh his rebellion um i was introduced to this film because my parents saw it and uh this should tell you a lot about my parents uh my dad loved the movie and my mom hated the movie and they had a pretty big argument about it and uh subsequently i wasn't allowed to see it for a really long time even though i wanted to and so i snuck watching it at a at a friend's house when i was in arizona during a summer vacation and uh yeah i thought it was incredible and it was an amazing movie it has stuck with me ever since and um i judging by our trivia it has also stuck with todd and and you terry and uh yeah it's it's an iconic classic movie yeah this was a movie that uh i loved the from the first moment i saw it um i have a list that i keep of like my my all-time favorite films and i i i've set this list over 10 years ago and I just I haven't really updated it for a while and American Beauty falls in in there at 21 uh and and it's it's such a great movie uh I it had been a while since I'd watched it so I was really curious to go back and and uh and view it again because it also I was afraid it was a film that could be very dated and not have the impact it had uh, originally, and one, I think one of the things we'll get into a little bit is how it has been dated, but also I think very much so it it's it covers such uh, universal things 
that uh, even those parts of it are dated, I think it's still a, a, an amazing film uh, today as well. Todd, what about you? Yeah, I think I actually showed it to you, and so I think you're right. Judging by that, I wouldn't have really been old enough to have bought it until I would have probably been what like that would have been 2000. I, I went to buy it to like 2007 or 2008, so it was well after it came out. So I don't know we, that we didn't watch it. We didn't watch it when it came out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I I don't think we had. I would have. I never worried about it being dated because I saw it several years after it came out, and I I've always loved it. I thought that it was a breath of fresh air with like a lot of other best picture winners. I mean, it does have that like uh like a suburban drama kind of thing that they did sometimes in the 80s, but. It really was the last one. It was always felt kind of different. Like, this is a movie that was nominated for, like, American Comedy Awards for funniest movie, funniest actor, and funniest actress. But I never really had thought about it like that. But it is really funny. And it's considered almost like a teen comedy when it's, like, spoofed in not another teen movie and stuff. I always thought, like, everyone's experience is probably different with it if, if, like, people that thought about it like that and also thought about it as the most, you know, sophisticated movie and winning Best Picture I, I've always loved it, so it's never left my top 100, and I, I don't really see it doing that anytime soon, because it is one of those movies like Sideways that I just feel like they need to watch every once in a while, and I, I do. I probably watch it once a year. Well, and it's a movie also that, um, talking about it in terms of it being a best picture, uh, the Oscars did something with this movie that they don't do very often, and is, that is making a movie, uh, letting a movie win best picture that is about that time um usually best picture winners are period pieces i I saw something recently that said that um american beauty and silence of the lambs were the only two movies that weren't period pieces that won best picture in the 90s and if you go through the entire if you go through the 80s i think rain man is the only one and ordinary people would be the only ones that were not period pieces that won um so it's something that I think was was uh, starting a trend that started to happen more and more moving forward of movies that aren't nostalgic but actually speak about that time period and that place in time and what it what that uh, era was all about. And I remember many people saying American Beauty was was a snapshot of America at that time in a lot of ways. Yeah, I would second that, Terry. And one of the reasons I, I, I remember the nineteen ninety nine Academy Awards, and one of the, one of the things that really made American Beauty distinguish itself, and I would still say even twenty years later, it, it, it's still very atypical of Best Picture winners to do this, but it was very much a young person's movie. You know, it was people in their twenties and thirties that saw, and teenagers, quite frankly, that that saw American Beauty and were really captivated by it. It was not a movie that geared toward older audiences, um, and that I think is a pretty relative. Rarity in the Academy because uh, you know look at the recent best pictures you know Green Book and Spotlight and some of these other films that are are much more kind of in the classical tradition of filmmaking whereas American Beauty was very edgy not just in terms of its content but also its aesthetics and the fact that it had a first time director and a younger cast and uh, it, it it was very edgy at the time it came out but but I would challenge that too because you say it's a young person's movie but it is but it's also a movie about a midlife crisis. And so you have this movie that can really appeal to really any any age demographic, which might be why it was so so universally loved and why it ended up being best picture. 
that's that's true that's true but like you know if you were a high schooler in 1989 yeah okay you'd go see american beauty you probably wouldn't go see you know like the straight story or uh you know, Cider House Rules. Or The Insider. I mean... <laughs> the Sixth well, I, Sense, though. I mean, well, that, that year was totally yeah. weird. That's true. Yeah. And and I uh, I just listened to a podcast the other day about, uh, about Saving Private Ryan, which was uh, nominated for Best Picture the year before. And you go back to 1998, and three of your five Best Picture nominees were about World War II. And the one that won was Shakespeare in Love. I mean, it was... So you had that. And then you have this win, win Best Picture the very next year. It just showed just how how uh, unusual it was and how groundbreaking it was in a lot of ways. Another thing that kind of distinguishes American Beauty a little bit, too, is the fact that it wasn't a Miramax film. I mean, you got to remember, this was a time when Miramax was dominating the Academy Awards. Miramax's big, big film in 1999 was The Talented Mr. Ripley, which, you know, had a lot of Oscar-caliber talent with it. But uh, it, it, its fault was that it was released too late in the year. And by the time it was released, American Beauty had pretty much captivated all the audiences and it made a major push. And it was yet another example of DreamWorks um, really splashing onto the, onto the stage because this was the first of the DreamWorks best pictures, if I remember correctly. And um, the, the next year was Gladiator and the year after that was A Beautiful Mind. So it was kind of uh, a seminal turning point in the DreamWorks versus Miramax battle for Oscar uh, legacy in the late 90s and early 2000s. By the way, just to further my point, in 1998, the fifth best picture nominee that I hadn't mentioned, so it was Saving Private Ryan, Life is Beautiful, The Thin Red Line, Shakespeare in Love 1, and the last one was Elizabeth, about Elizabeth I. So you went from a, all five being period pieces to American Beauty winning, Sixth Sense nominated, uh, a very different, uh, a very different lineup there. So this leads kind of into the first category I wanted to talk about was, uh, it's a two-part category. It's, is this still our Best Picture winner if we're voting now? And what nominations would be added or subtracted from the movie if they were voting now? Interesting question. That is an interesting question. I would say yes. It would still be... I mean, the, like, like we've been saying, I feel like this feels like an all-time great movie. And and that... That... Uh, hits different people in different ways and uh everyone can really get behind it um yeah i think it's still best picture i would agree i th- i think uh uh i mean in terms of if you're i mean obviously we'll, we'll talk maybe about you know kevin spacey a little bit and i don't know how you know the me too movement has maybe changed some things but i think in terms of just uh how shocking it was in 1999 and but it, but also just like what terry said that that in, in many ways in spite of its kind of racy content it unified a lot of different de- demographics of filmgoers and it had that kind of critical appeal and the commercial studio behind it spielberg especially um yes i would absolutely say it, it would still remain the the uh the oscars choice in 1999 i think 1999 is is actually a little bit of a relatively weak year in terms of uh oscar films i think it benefited off that a little bit yeah i i agree i think it also would still be winning i I mean it is a product of its time but it does still feel relevant i don't think a lot of it ages badly except for like maybe the voyeurism stuff wouldn't like with like social media wouldn't really work as well 
but like I don't really think it ages that badly. The only the only thing I, I thought is was interesting is that I thought when uh, AFI redid their list that American Beauty would definitely be on it, and it wasn't, but The Sixth Sense was. And so even 10 years later or 9 years later, like it was already viewed that The Sixth Sense was actually the better movie, so that would be the only thing that would make me think that maybe that would have been voted above the American Beauty. And it's really strange that it, it would have Sixth Sense on there and not American Beauty. I, feel, I, I think, well, if they came out with another list today, honestly, with... with uh, with what's happened with Kevin Spacey. I don't know if it, you would even see this on the list, but it feels like one of those classics that only gets better with time. Yeah, but, I mean, um, you nailed it, Terry. Like, if the movie still starred Kevin Spacey and if it had some of those, like you said, Todd, the voyeurism issue, then, yeah, I don't think this movie would even be released today. But, I mean, you could make that argument. I think The Sixth Sense is kind of interesting. I love The Sixth Sense. I actually have The Sixth Sense ranked higher on my 1999 list than I do... Uh, uh, American Beauty. I know Todd certainly doesn't, but um, I think one of the reasons why the Academy didn't go with The Sixth Sense, in spite of it also being a cr- critical and commercially successful film, is that um, it was still considered a horror film and just a little bit too middlebrow for the Academy. I think American Beauty was just in that perfect region of being a little bit pretentious, a little bit artsy, but also commercially and critically beloved. I have I have Sixth Sense four, American Beauty one, in 1999. I've got Green Mile and Fight Club in between. Uh, Sierra, I don't know. Six cents. I don't even know where I have it. I have six cents, number 68, and American Beauty, number three. That's just disrespectful. Flagrantly <laughs> disrespectful. <laughs> I actually revisited Six Cents recently, too, and, and it totally holds up. It is such a good movie. It's a masterpiece. I have Six yeah, Cents, yeah. number still, three. I, I still don't know if I've actually watched it all in one sitting. Dude. Because you can't stay awake. Yeah, it is so boring. <laughs> you weren't there well, either way. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't there. I was like eleven years old. Okay, so uh, so going to the other part of your question, would there be in what other nominations would it have gotten? Enough, um, or, or what would it have gotten or, less? Yeah. Or gotten less? I I think I mean. Well, yeah, with Kevin, Kevin Spacey, Spacey still gets nom. Yeah. Um, so who? But who and who's and, the and we're still we're we're looking at this in terms of like. Yeah. yeah, but if, I mean, if, if, this... he, if he wasn't nominated, who would be the winner? Oh, Russell Crowe. It would. It would be Jim Carrey. If they were voting now, I think I think Jim Carrey, Man on the Moon, would absolutely be the winner. Oh, yeah. Well, that yeah, because he wasn't even nominated for that. Um, I think Russell Crowe for The Insider would be a, a solid case as well. I would hope so. Yeah, he, um, he was the best in the category. I think. Uh. Annette Benning would definitely still get nominated. Uh, I think this is a film that very easily, if it came out today, would get that that full lead actor, lead actress, supporting actor, supporting actress. Um, so you, I mean, you could have well, Chris Cooper. I think absolutely would get nominated now. That's the totally type of role that gets nominated for Oscars. True, but man, this was one of the strongest years for supporting actor, like ever. And somehow Michael Caine was the one that won, but you had Haley Joel Osment for Six Sense, Jude Law Talent to Mr. Ripley, Michael Clark Duncan, Green Mile, and Tom Cruise and Magnolia. I mean that that Chris Cooper definitely should be on there, but who do you take off? I don't think you take anyone off. Th- that is, those are five outstanding. Well, you take Michael Caine off. Michael, yeah, Michael Caine doesn't deserve. He, his was the weakest of the five. Well, I think, and I think the posthumous thing would actually give Michael Clark Duncan the win at that point. But, I mean, at the same time, you ought to think that, if they're voting now, you think that Brad Pitt and Fight Club would also have been nominated over one of those guys. 
probably over Haley Joel Osment. I but I think Chris Cooper that that is the absolute type of role that Chris, Chris Cooper's role is the type of role that went that gets nominated for Oscars. It's like it'd be like I don't know like Mike, Tom Wilkinson in uh, in uh, Michael Clayton like that kind of role like that the kind of half like crazy old guy old father Chris figure Cooper, type. Chris Cooper is consistently overlooked all the time, and I don't know why because he is so good in everything that he does. So another award that this film won at the Oscars was Best Cinematography, Conrad Hall. And one of the things I remember about that Oscar ceremony is that Conrad Hall was like the original Roger Deakins. I mean, this guy had been working in Hollywood for like 40 years and had gotten a ton of nominations. And um, he won, I suspect in part, because it was a somewhat of a legacy award. I mean, the cinematography, which I'm sure we'll talk about in American Beauty, is really good. But this was like Conrad Hall's big moment. He finally got recognition. And then he actually won an Oscar three years later, posthumously, for uh, Road to Perdition, when he teamed up again with uh, Sam Mendes. So, um, again, I don't, I don't know if, if it would win cinematography today, unless you still have that narrative of Conrad Hall being like a ten-time loser and then finally winning one. But it is good cinematography for what it's worth. And I don't know what else it would be nominated for. It was nominated for original score. That was one thing I noticed was amazing in this movie, is the score was just awesome. Todd, what do you think? Well, I mean, that, that was, I, I, like, if it was voted on now, I don't think Kevin Spacey would have gotten nominated. I think Chris Cooper would have made it in at some point. But other than that, but yeah, I, I think everything else that it was nominated for, there's no reason to think it wouldn't have been. I don't, I don't see a supporting actress getting nominated like you said, though. I don't, I don't, I'm not really sure who you would have put in there. But I think either of the, either of the girls, Sora Birch or Mina Subari could have gotten in there. Or Allison Janney. Yeah. That's that such been a peculiar performance. All right, so so let's uh let's move on and get into get into MVP now because that's usually how we start these highest war or highest war. That's what I meant. Uh, highest war performance, uh, Zach. What do you think? This is a really tough one. Um, really tough. Yeah, I I didn't want to say Kevin Spacey because. I feel like there's a lot of other actors in 1999 that, that probably could have played the role adequately um, and uh, probably could have done some of the same things he did. Actually, Jim Carrey would have been interesting in this role. I, I never really thought about that, but um, I, I it, it, it's hard. Um, I will tell you the performance that I was most impressed with. I don't really know if this is the highest war, but it's uh, just rewatching it. It was the performance I was most impressed by. Maybe it's a weird pick, but you know, so what? It, it was Thora Birch. Yeah. To you, he's just another guy who wants to jump your bones. But to me, he's just too embarrassing to live. Well, your mom's the one who's embarrassing. What a phony. But your dad's actually kind of cute. I thought she was really good in this movie. I never really noticed her too much before in the movie, but I think it's actually sort of a challenging role because in some ways she's going against these towering performances by Kevin Spacey and Annette Bening and even Chris Cooper, and she manages to be really vulnerable, insecure, but also sort of cunning to some degree because, you know, the opening scene she's talking about possibly murdering her father. And again, there's that sort of vulnerability that is sort of misplaced as hatred uh, against the world and I don't know I, she comes off as really interesting I can't really there's not a lot of younger actresses maybe Anna Paquin could have played it but there's not a lot of under, younger actresses in the late 90s that I think could have brought that same sort of edge edge to the role being both like a goth and a cheerleader and like 
you know, someone who's obviously some sort sort victimized by her parents in her suburban, uh, you know, j- prison. So I, I give her the the highest war in the movie. That's a that's a good pick. Uh, uh, like you said, it's easy to go with Kevin Spacey. I think Annette Bening and Chris Cooper also have very high award. But again, just like you, there was there was someone that really stood out to me this uh, this most recent watch, and for me, it was Wes Bentley as Ricky Fitz. And this incredibly benevolent force that wanted me to know that there was no reason to be afraid. Sometimes there's so much beauty. In the world, I feel like I can't take it. Uh, he was one that that really jumped off the screen at me, and and I thought, man, this he is so perfect for this role. Um, and and as that just that that mystery to him that that has that that soft in uh, that soft core to him, but he still. Has ha, portrays that uh, that hard exterior uh, when he needs to. Um, he, it, I was just completely blown away by his performance in this, and so I mean I, I'm kind of disqualifying those top three because I feel like those top three are kind of irreplaceable. But uh, but yeah, Wes Bentley I thought was this last time through he was the most impressive for me. Todd, what about you? Well, I mean, you guys are obviously right. I think Kevin Spacey is the obvious choice because I, I honestly, like, I don't know anyone else that could have done it. Jenny, today I quit my job. <laughs> and then I told my boss to go f*** himself, and then I blackmailed him for almost $60,000 past the asparagus. Your father seems to think this kind of behavior is something to be proud of. And your mother seems to prefer that I go through life like a f***ing prisoner while she keeps my d- in a mason jar under the sink. How dare you speak to me that way in front of her? And I marvel that you can be so contemptuous of me on the same day that you lose your job. I didn't lose it. It's not like, whoops, where'd my job go? I quit. But I could see part of me could be like a certain point of Sam Rockwell's career he could have done, and a certain part of Jack Lemmon's career he could have done it, but that's about it. But like Zach, I was thinking Thora Birch too, because I was trying to think of anybody that I think that could have actually done that. And I think Shailene Woodley... At, at a time could have done it maybe amanda seafried but and maybe even like scarlett johansson at the at that time could have done it but i mean thora birch was so good that she basically played the same role in ghost ghost world and it's i i can't see anyone else in that role i don't think there is anyone that could have played it with the west bentley role i think that it's possible i think adam scott at the same time could have actually played that role too but i mean they are oh, they're very similar that's a actors. good one yeah that is a good one it's interesting you bring up Ghost World, though, Todd, because I think she's actually really different in Ghost World. I mean, maybe, you know, she's sort of that gothy, cynical, wry, you know, nature, but she's actually a much more sort of extroverted, outgoing, and in many ways like a health, a healthier character in Ghost World. Um, and, you know, one of the things that you could say about all three of the younger actors in this movie, Wes Bentley, Mina Savari, and Thor Birch, is they all had relatively disappointing careers after this movie, which is really sad. I mean, compare this to, like, Almost Famous, which introduced the world to so many great characters and so many great actors, you know, especially, like, young William Miller. Um, and uh, no one True. ever really materialized from this movie, which is sad. Like, what's the yeah, what, definitely had... what's the best thing that Wes Bentley ever did? You know, Hunger Games? Hung- Hunger Games, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's, that's pathetic. The Four Feathers. Four Feathers, yeah, that was the other one I was thinking. Well, Mina yeah. Sabari at least was in the uh, American Pie movies, so. That's true. 
Another reason I don't think you can go with Kevin Spacey as as a uh, highest war is because I think he's meant to be like an everyman, you know. Like I, I think there's a lot of other actors that he's he's meant to sort of represent maybe like a composite of you know middle aged fed up white guy that we saw even like Michael Douglas really uh, master in the early '90s or like even Tom Hanks to a certain extent. Um, so I don't know. I think that, I think a lot of actors in Hollywood, even in 1999, probably could have could have played it. Maybe not the same kind of performance, but. Um, it, it was not an unattainable kind of role. I don't know about it ever. I think he's supposed to be like kind of a loser. I mean, I honestly found a lot of parallels that just thinking about this time that I did to Office Space because they both have like, they're both like this employee who it, like has to describe his job to his authorities and then he uh, sort of like half gets fired, half uh, like quits his job and then he has like sort of a, a life of like happiness that he never had before after that i mean that's the kind of thing like those characters are losers and they become really cool because they and they, they almost become an everyman as an up that rather than i don't know they didn't start that way like th- those characters are miserable in their lives but a lot of actors could have played that you know i don't think so not at not at that age not that time i, I don't know i i can't think of a single one that, that could have done it at, in 1999 uh brian cranston he could have no. done it uh, no. Yeah, he played a very similar character named Walter White ten years later. I, I don't think I can't see that much similarity in that. I I, I I'd have later, to like I have to agree with Todd. I think I, I I could see other people playing it, but no one could have done it quite like Kevin Spacey did. Uh, he brought he he took that performance and made it and made it something completely different and took it to another level that I don't think anybody else could have at the time. Can I say something about Kevin Spacey's performance that bothers me in the movie? Sure. And I don't, I can't remember if you mentioned it, Terry, or if you did Todd, but he's clearly like channeling Jack Lemmon in the movie. Like some of the lines he says it, it, you know, obviously Kevin Spacey is a great impersonator. He's like the modern day bridge little. We've all seen that Charlie Rose clip where he does all those imitations. And then obviously pre 2017, it was very fun to watch him do those. But like, you know, when he says like $50,000 for a hooker, that's somebody's job. I mean, he sounds exactly like Jack Lemmon, you know, in like, you know, uh, I don't know, the apartment or days of wine and roses saying some of those things. Like he has the same kind of intonation. And obviously he like talked about, how he channeled Jack Lemmon in this performance so that's another reason why I can't fully give him the war because it's like he's obviously impersonating Jack Lemmon at times in this movie well I, th- I think they're very similar actors too and and uh, and yeah Kevin Spacey has been very vocal about how Jack Lemmon was a was a hero of his and how he always attained to try and to try and be more like him but yeah and, and Todd's the one that said he could see Jack Lemmon at a time playing him, and I, I agree. You put Jack Lemmon in his 40s and put him in this movie, and it, it makes perfect sense. So what do you want to talk about worst performance now? Worst, worst performance. performance. Yes. Because for me, I don't think there are a lot of options. My, my pick is Amber Smith as Christy Kane. Uh, because she looks like she doesn't even want to be in the movie I I wouldn't be surprised if she got fired after they filmed the scene of them at that party just because she was like rolling her eyes the entire time and not because she like that was her character just because like I was like what the hell would we get this model to play his wife for if she's not going to do anything and they just wrote her out of it and I think Buddy would have cheated on her anyway I, I don't know like, I, I think they just like made up like oh yeah she's moving to New York just because she sucked that much and they're like we need to get rid of this lady <laughs> does she even have any lines in the movie besides she when she says not. like hi 
hi to Carolyn and, and Lester when they're at the party. I don't think so. I think she gives the worst performance, though. But maybe that's more, that's more a reflection of how good the cast is, though, is what you're saying. Like, there, there aren't a lot of bad performances. Yeah, the, uh, there are no bad performances in the top, like, eight actors in the movie. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. So who I'm going to go with with worst performance is is more uh, an actor that I just despise, and I don't even really know why, but I really don't like Scott Bakula. <laughs> Hi. Welcome to the neighborhood. Just a little something from our garden. Except for the pasta. We got that at Falaccio's. Right. It's unbelievably fresh. You just, you drop it in the water and it's done. Jim Olmeyer, two doors down. Welcome to the neighborhood. And, <laughs> and so whenever I see him, I'm like, dude, why does he have to be in this movie? And he actually does a fine job in this, but just Scott Bakula, I, I, for whatever reason, I I just like, dude. He why, is a tax attorney. You, yeah, <laughs> and he's an anesthesiologist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Scott Bakula is one of the gyms. That's who I'm gonna go with simply because I just don't like Scott Bakula. That's fair. <laughs> Zach, what about you? Uh, well, I'm gonna go with Wes Bentley. I'm, I'm gonna go uh, maybe Ooh. play devil's advocate. I don't find him very compelling in this movie. I think there were a lot of younger actors in the late '90s, like maybe Jake Gyllenhaal or Tobey Maguire, who could have made maybe made a a, a a better role. I mean, I know that the the, the the you know Ricky Fitz is supposed to be someone who's somewhat sedated, somewhat traumatized from his experience in a mental hospital. But man, the guy's—I I don't know—he's just so empty. Like there's not there, there's no affect in his voice. And again, maybe that's the way that he chose to play the character. But um, I, I don't know. I I, I don't really buy it. Uh, it it's just there, there's a lack of charisma. And um, I don't know. I would have liked someone with like again a harder edge. You know, someone who's like a little bit more. I don't charismatic in a way like you know maybe a young Aaron Paul like that's that's the direction that I see that character in but again that's that's it that was Wes Bentley's interpretation of the role maybe they meant it in a different way but I don't know the guy seems so vapid and empty it's like is there anyone in there hello and then that's why I, they want you to think he's a serial killer I don't know I think Hall would have been awful in that like he was a terrible actor at that time like I know he, he was, was great a, in October Sky. What are you talking about? Oh, he's a horrible. He was a horrible actor in that. The, like Donnie Darko and all that. He's he's he was awful until he until he teamed how up. About, with how about Ledger. James Franco? You know, young James Franco would have been cool in that role. I mean, there's a lot of different actors who I, I think I don't know could have been a lot more charismatic. How about how, how about, about Chris Klein? Like yeah, that? Chris Chris Klein. I I would totally see that, or even like Sean William Scott in a serious, semi serious role. You know, like that that would be that would be interesting and, and and funny. I mean, there are a lot of cool young actors coming out in the late '90s and early 2000s. Wes Bentley is just I don't know. You I, I wouldn't put this on uh, my my reel of acting in terms of great performances. There's no affect in his voice at all. One of them I was thinking was Ryan Phillippe. Yeah, why not? For sure. Yeah, he would have been a little old at that time, but yeah. I don't know how old Wes so- Bentley was. But. I read somewhere that uh, that uh, the casting director that was uh, trying to cast uh, the part of Ricky Fitz was listening to all these people come in, and the the part that they were that they were saying was the uh, the monologue about the bag uh, floating around, and uh, and the casting director said that after she heard Wes Bentley read the part, she finally understood what the line was about, and that's why he got the part. Because of yep. how he was able to deliver that that monologue. Well, yeah, that's obviously a beautiful, perfect scene. So, mm-hmm. how about the oldest, the the oldest Lovell, Jay Lovell? He could have played Ricky Fitz. <laughs> 
He could have come back from space camp in Wisconsin, and uh, he could have pulled it off. He would have had to get rid of the crew cut, but, you know. It wasn't space camp. What was it called? You're the one that got that answer right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Boy, I don't remember. Was, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> I asked a question. I don't even remember your it is it is interesting because Ricky yeah, I never knew it. Ricky Fitz apparently was put in the mental hospital because someone made fun of his hair and uh Jay Lovell is told get a haircut. So there you go. There's some there's some And that parallels. would never have been said Conspiracy in the context. <laughs> I just, I just put that together. Someone made fun of his hair so he was put in the mental hospital and that's why he always wears a hat. Must be. He doesn't always it has wear to a hat. Be. Well, I guess just in public. In public, yeah. If someone made fun of your hair, would you beat them up? I mean, that seems like a fairly extreme reaction for someone well, without affect. It, it is. It is a fairly extreme reaction. However, you also have to realize that he's the son of the colonel, and in a lot of ways, exactly like him. That was one of the things I noticed is is some of the parallels between the characters. Um, one of the most moving scenes of the movie the this time I watched it was when uh, Colonel Fitz comes busting into his room, uh, freaking out about how he had broken into his uh, into his office and and uh, and such. And are you looking for money and all this stuff? And and he says, No, I was showing showing my girlfriend your Nazi plate. And he he goes through and says, You know, you you need you need order, you need structure, you can't just do whatever you want all the time. And and it's it's him telling, it's the colonel telling Ricky, everything that he has enforced in himself and bottled up in himself, which you you realize later on, but this time that that scene was just so poignant for me, of of the, the as he's telling Ricky who he needs to be, he's revealing who he has made himself. I thought it was just just a beautiful scene and beautifully written. So so I let's go to biggest douchebag or slash uh, LVP of this movie because there are several people in this movie that are quite awful in in many many ways. Well, I think the biggest douchebag easily is Buddy the King Kane. When I saw you two at the party the other night, you seemed perfectly happy. Call me crazy. But it is my philosophy that in order to be successful, one must project an image of success at all times. I mean, the king is, I mean, he, he just exudes douchiness in everything he does. Um, and everything he is about is fake. And that, that's, the, that's the ultimate, ultimate uh, douchebag right there. Is he really a douchebag, though? Because, like, he offers Carolyn business advice, even though they're competition. And obviously he has ulterior motives, but, like, I, you know, he's he does good at his job, and, um, you know, he, he's up for uh, helping out with the competition. Yeah, that is not why he was giving <laughs> advice. <laughs> okay, here's here's maybe a conspiracy theory question a little bit, but do, do, do you think Buddy, actually, Buddy and Christy actually get divorced, or is that just him lying? Like, has she actually left for New York? That is a great question. I think so. 
Because he, well, I would say, I would say potentially, because he brings it up again later too. It's like I'm about to go through this. But if she actually, and yada, yada, yada. if she actually left for New York, though, why would they keep going to the motel? Why wouldn't they just go to his house? That's a good question too. It seems because a little... they didn't have a prenup or something, and she had maybe she had the house or something. I don't know. He probably have been living in a hotel. It, it seems a little convenient that she would just so happen to leave, you know, right around the time that, you know, he he's trying to get into Carolyn Burnham's pants. I and mean, plus it's I more exciting to act like outlaws and go fool around in a in a hotel rather than just like going in, into some the other one's house, right? Like Possibly. that's what she was after. She was out of out of out for a little excitement and something she hadn't had in a while. That's why she once likes firing the gun. You know, I don't I I don't think I don't but, think the hotel had anything to do with, like, the, yeah, the details of that. But that's not, that doesn't involve his wife. That's not about Christy, though. I'm just saying I think he's lying about Christy leaving for New York. I, I think that's just a, that's just a ruse. But, I think that's, that's very, yeah, that's very possible. And it's something that we, we will never know, but it easily could be. And it would add to your case, Terry, for, uh, for Buddy being uh, the biggest douchebag of the movie. Absolutely. Then, yes, I'm going to say there was no divorce. Just to add to my case. Well, my biggest douchebag, but it's more like biggest bitch, I guess, are saleswoman number four. Oh, damn it, you stole her from me, Todd. Two, <laughs> two of them are actually... I'm about to talk about her. Two of them are billed as saleswoman number four. <laughs> you know, and it's, yeah. I mean, I think lagoon, I think waterfall, I think tropical. This is a cement hole. When I think tropical, I think lagoon. There's nothing lagoon-like about it. This is a cement hole. You know, she's just... Ah, uh, what, what a terrible person. And, yeah, like, that that is a kind of person going into a house that is there for no good reason. It's like uh, Jason Siegel in Forgetting Sarah Marshall or something like that, you know. Just, like, calling out people's farts. Like, he has no reason to be there. Like, that's exactly what these, these ladies are not mean, buying I anything. love you, man. I, I love, love you, man. man. What a, yeah. yeah, exactly. I love you, man. That's, yeah. 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 Never mind. <laughs> okay, so I have another mini conspiracy theory about that too. I'll, I'll just say right now, um, the house that that Carolyn is showing in that scene, I think that's the same house that the Nicolas Cage character in Matchstick Men lives in. Like, it has the blinds, it has Ooh. the carpet, it has the swimming pool, it has those closets, that very like rancho nineteen seventies kind of look. It's the exact same house. And it's not too far removed from the White household in Breaking Bad. Although they, it's obvious it's a little different, but like some of the layout features are very similar to that too. That's an interesting theory. It's it's a stupid theory. I just you know, I wanted to put it <laughs> forth. So so Zach, who who would be since even if Todd took yours, uh, who's your okay. who's yours? I guess I'm going to have to go with the character of Catering Boss played by uh <laughs> someone <laughs> um uh and uh oh joel mccrary and he is uh ricky's boss at the uh party that's being thrown for the real estate agents and he calls uh ricky an asshole when he quits on the job and um yeah that's that's sort of a, a dick move i think um especially given that ricky is you know a young impressionable youth who is only having the job so he doesn't have to uh you know explain things to his dad i would also say one of the biggest douchebags in the movie is um the off-screen character of the bartender who is actually played by the producer of the the movie um dan cohen who does not give lester very much alcohol and lester says whoa whoa whoa, give me a little bit more there cowboy uh that's sort of a douche move um but in all seriousness if, if we're being serious here because those are ridiculous answers um it, it has to be brad dupree right nobody's getting fired yet 
That's why we're having everyone write out a job description mapping out in detail how they contribute. That way management can assess who's valuable and who's, who's expendable. It's just business. I mean, that guy's a total total douchebag in this movie, you know? And, like, it's pretty clear that he, you know, he's an efficiency expert and, uh, you know, he has no concern at all for the well-being of the employees and he's standing up for these people that are doing terrible things. By the way, do, do you notice the similarities between that scene between Brad Dupree and Lester Burnham and Terry's favorite scene in uh, the... Uh, uh, gosh, um, sorry. The, uh, the stupid Tom Hanks movie. Um you know, where Philip Seymour Hoffman gets fired. I'm sorry. You know what I'm talking about, right? Charlie uh, Wilson's oh, War. Oh, Charlie Wilson's yeah, Char- War. Charlie Wilson's similar War. Similar to They're like similar the same scene. Yeah. Okay, you need to quit giving like four answers because you're covering other categories. Okay, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. LVP for me is absolutely the catering boss, and it's not because of anything you said. It's because he has no business running that place. Like, he has no idea that his employee's outside, and when he goes out, he can't even tell that he's smoking pot, even though I guess Carolyn didn't either at the same time, but... He, his drunk, employee though. is obviously super smart and he just lets him quit when he's probably going to get charged with some sort of harassment because he came out of a mental institution so he's obviously got some mental disease and he's totally going to get a lawsuit out of this by just like firing him and insulting him on his way out like this guy obviously need to do a background check he is a terrible <laughs> boss like there's no reason he should be running that place right yes absolutely all right, so my my LVP is uh, is the manager of Mr. Smiley's, played by Dennis Anderson, who uh, is trying to uh, convince Lester that he is overqualified to be uh, to work the counter at a fast food establishment. There's nothing I have fast wrong food with him. experience. <laughs> yeah, like twenty years ago. <laughs> Don't you have like training? <laughs> What, what what's wrong with him? He he seems like a more than capable boss. It seems like it's a very good operation at Mr. Smiley's. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, the, <laughs> the other the, the floor the floor manager lady, like she was obviously she's good at her job, and she she took over to the point that she's like this is her turf, so technically Janine. it is her business. Well, yeah. Janine's the manager of the. Technically, you are on her turf. Okay, so you mentioned Brad Dupree. He's actually my favorite minor character in the movie because he is kind of. He like he's 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 actually really good at his job and he but he's so funny that he reads the job description out loud that he wrote like nobody's actually gonna do that unless you obviously think that you're the shit and he he realizes immediately that he's uh, dealing with somebody who has thought it through and is gonna win anyway and like when he like brings up the sexual harassment charge that he was gonna file against him and that honestly ages really well because that's exactly how you would have to handle it right now. And I don't think that was the case in 1999, but, I mean, right now, like, that that was like, wow. Yeah, if you just say those words, shit, game over. Gotta give him the money, right? I think Yeah, pretty much. I think another douchebag that we can mention is Craig, because clearly Craig is cheating on his wife and using the company credit card to pay for the hooker. So even though he's off camera and, and not on screen ever, um, he's certainly part of the reason why the company has to, you know, cut the fat and potentially fire employees. But at the same time, like he was, he obviously had enough influence that nobody was calling him out on it until one guy was trying to save his job. You know, it's like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I guess that is kind of is a douche, but at the same time, he's also just sort of like a, he's taking advantage of his opportunity, I guess. So my, my favorite minor character is a uh, sale house man. Number one, uh, played, played by John Cho. Because yes. it's one of those that, as you're watching it, he's on screen just long enough for you to go, 
hold on, wait, wait, wait a second, wait a second. Was that John Cho? Uh, and, and it's just long enough that, and he never shows up again. And then it's just like one little, like one and a half second clip of him on screen that you go, wait. That's about I the extent of his face. performance in American Pie, too, right? Rewind that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he's my favorite minor character. Yeah, well, that that's funny that you mentioned him because I was going to mention Sales House Woman number one, uh, oh. played by Ara Selly, and she's one of my favorite um, minor characters because she appears to be wearing a T-shirt with a picture of Chairman Mao on it, and I'm not really sure why, but I, it, it's it's interesting, you know. Yeah, I noticed that shirt too. That was odd. I, I'd like to know where they sell shirts that have, you know, <laughs> pictures of totalitarian dictators that killed 30 million people. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> I, I also like uh, Sale House Man number two, simply because the actor's name is Ford Atkinson. <laughs> That's true. I'm looking at that right now. <laughs> That's a good name. That's a great name. Okay, so uh, I want to talk about um, about something else with this now. And the, the, I guess if you want to give it a category, I, I want to talk about what has, what is now dated in this film. Because it is very much a film of the late 90s, and it has a lot of late 90s references in it. And so what, it, what is dated in this, in this, uh, in this film? I, uh, there were a couple things that I noticed that uh, if this movie were to be remade today, this wouldn't be the case anymore. One... You had um, when when Lester calls Angela, and she calls back. She goes, so "You just someone just called me, and I star sixty nine you." Like nobody yeah, knows what that means anymore. And then the well, other yeah, well, one, obviously, you can't you can't ever say cell phone usage is dated and stuff. Like that's just, I mean, th- that's just a cop out because anything in the last twenty years or anything ten years and twenty years ago, yeah, that's it's all the same. But but just mentioning Star sixty nine, it made that it, was like a big thing at the time. It was huge. Um, and then the other one that uh, that I noticed is as Carolyn is getting ready to sell the house, it's like okay, I've got this big open house. I will sell this house today. So what does she do? She puts a sign on the for sale sign saying open house today, and she makes sure her table display inside the front door is perfect. It's like okay. This is not how you sell a house anymore. You you make sure it's posted on Zillow and stuff like that. And and if you're running an open house, it's all over Facebook and things like that. I, I, it was it was one of those where as I'm watching it and thinking about how dated or if this movie is dated, it was one of those things. I said this this is not the way this is done anymore. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Anything for anything from you guys? Yeah, I had a couple. I, you know, you're you're right. To, you have to distinguish, I think, a little bit between, like, obviously, you know, it, just a byproduct of it being 20 years later, the technology has evolved. But there are also some, like, cultural references that don't really hold up well. Um, and it, even in movie parlance. So, like, for example, I also had an issue with the phones. It wasn't so much that um, the, the Star 69 was mentioned, but it, the phone numbers are obviously fake in this movie, which was very much a thing in 90s and 2000s movies that Hollywood movies weren't allowed to use real phone numbers. So the, all the phone numbers in this movie, especially in the beginning when you see, like, the real estate contact numbers are 555-0109 or whatever, that's very, very dated. I think movies today have gotten a lot more sophisticated with, like, actual, uh, you know, phone numbers. So th- those stick out as someone in 
annoying. Um, also, Lester talks about that uh, he doesn't want to go to the basketball game because the James Bond marathon is on TNT. Um, yes, I noticed that too. <laughs> that that feels that reference now suddenly feels dated, and then that uh, still happens. Yeah, yeah, but he I could guess. just throw in the disc or or just pop it on Amazon or just Prime TiVo or something. it or something. Yeah, I mean, even even TiVo, if they no, that's dated. <laughs> Well, you know, I don't know. Um, and, and then the last thing I guess I would say and, and, uh, is, uh, is Ricky Fitz's camera equipment. I mean, my goodness. I mean, this is, you know, I, I get that this is 1999 and we're talking about, like, consumer-grade uh, camera equipment. But, like, that is such – the, the mini-DV tapes are, like, pretty bad. And, you know, the, the 480p uh, resolution is pretty awful. And it's – actually, it is borderline one of my flaws in this movie, which is that for someone who allegedly has $40,000, why does he have – have such terrible camera equipment um i don't know but you know th- i guess it's 1999 maybe you couldn't get your hands on sophisticated equipment but uh that that technology is pretty bad yeah i mean yeah there, and there's no way he would have actually left that out he's like so protective about everything he just like leaves his camera and all right. his tapes out for his father to find but i mean i, I think that 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 also relates to one of the things I, the only thing i really think is dated badly and that's the the voyeurism stuff because like there's no way that uh, Jane is going to stand there and, like, get naked for the guy across the window when, especially now, it's like, that could be posted on any number of things that could be saved and put on something. Even at the time, like, that could have turned into, like, some sort of, like, weird internet thing. I don't know. Like, that, that, that I don't think really had a whole lot of validity to it. But that was the only thing I think ages badly. There's other flaws I could think of, though. Okay, so before we move on from from how it how it's aged, a couple other things that I thought of uh, with this. Um, first, uh, Todd, I'm gonna go to you first on this. Does does this film uh, one does it get does it look any different, um, or is if it were remade, would it would it be made any differently in a post nine eleven world? Because I think there are some things in here that, and some topics and some way things are presented that uh, I think very much date it as a pre-9-11 movie. I'm not sure what you're referring to. Zach, do you do you understand what I'm talking about? No. Can, can you clarify that a little bit? Uh, I That there's only white people in this movie? No, not that there's only white. Just, just some of the... Uh, it, it's, it's a very 90s movie in some of its... Uh, in, in some of its extravagance, the way it portrays midlife crisis, and some of the, the way we, we took things more seriously that it makes light of in this film after something serious like that has happened. I, I just feel like this is a movie that that um, that doesn't get made after 2001 uh, simply because of, uh, of some of the, the differences in how we, how we look at the world after something like that. Maybe maybe a little bit. You know, I, I think the bigger question is, you know, wh- where does this movie fit within the Me Too era, which which we've talked a little bit about already? Um, w- you know, would this movie be made today? And I think the answer is no. Certainly wouldn't have Kevin Spacey in it. But I think the most problematic aspect of this movie in 2019 is it isn't even so, so much the movie itself. It, it's more that 
that the Lester Burnham character is given a redemption arc. And I think that's like, that was one of the biggest uh, backlashes to Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. That was one of the biggest backlashes to Green Book. And obviously those were about race. But the fact that this movie essentially gives Lester Burnham a an out, um, in spite of the fact that he lusts after an underage teenage girl who he basically, you know, undresses and virtually almost has sex with, um, I think is really problematic in, in, in 2019. And uh, the character of Ricky Fitz and just the stuff that we were talking about with that that Todd had mentioned, you know, um, undressing in front of the window and this kind of kind of exhibitionist voyeurist uh, quality to the movie, it, it it doesn't age well. It would probably be excised in a 2019 version of it, but um, it's it's an interesting detail that I don't know how uh, 2019 viewers would respond to upon seeing the movie for the first time. I guess. I I, I would agree. Yeah, the, it would be it'd be really interesting to see. Um, someone who has never seen it before uh viewing this for the first time in in the context of today and how it would how it would stand up because of some of the stuff you just mentioned and it's an interesting question too because like with like bohemian rhapsody and a filmmaker like you know um uh uh brian singer like it's it's very easy to say with brian singer films like oh okay well he did terrible things on set and you know what i'm going to choose to you know i I can't divorce uh the director from his actions off screen because we don't know really what happened well kevin spacey wasn't the filmmaker he wasn't the writer he was the actor so it's it's debatable how much influence he had over the way that that the set operated so how do you say like do you reconcile the fact that you know kevin spacey was a creepy pervert in the 90s but like do we sort of say well this movie he didn't have a whole lot of like agency or power on the set so maybe this wasn't you know like uh it isn't that problematic maybe him as an actor is do we separate the two i mean it's like it it's it's really difficult you know whereas like with a brian singer movie or harvey weinstein movies those are i think a lot more clear-cut in some ways I've always I've always been one, and this that was the other point that I was going to get into as well. Dude, does this movie get viewed in a different light, looking at what has happened with Kevin Spacey over the last few years? And I've always been one that has been able to uh, separate the art from the artist, and so I really I really don't don't let the actions of of uh, who is involved affect the the product that's made, especially on on uh on looking back on something from before any of this ever came out it is very interesting though that you have a kevin spacey character lusting after an underage girl when you find out later on that he in real life was lusting after underage boys yeah i i don't know i don't think it would have necessarily been viewed that differently i mean you just got to remember like the whole Casey Affleck thing came out. He still won the Oscar. People still respect him because it was that outstanding of work. I mean, I think that would be the same way here. Yeah, but Kevin, I mean, Kevin Spacey, you know, he also, when he came out as gay, that was essentially his, people read it as his defense for why he molested younger actors. I mean, it was like, it, it was a terrible PR thing, and he did it in a really insensitive way, whereas Casey Affleck, I mean, that that, that was a little different. Those, those were allegations, and I don't know, it, it just, I mean, it was messy, too, in some ways, but, like, I guess... You're the, saying that's unsubstantiated gossip? <laughs> I guess, I guess... $50,000. Like, I guess, like, what's different about Kevin Spacey is, like, 
I, I see. I disagree with you, Terry. It's hard for me to separate the the artist from like uh, you know what what goes into the the art and like you know you look at uh, actresses who whose career was destroyed by Harvey Weinstein and the and the casting processes and you read about that stuff and it's it's really hard to reconcile that. But I think with this film, the fact that it it, it isn't it, it's just not very good optics that this movie is also about like pedophilia and voyeurism and just overall creepy middle aged men doing things that they shouldn't do. Uh, you cannot help but think about Kevin. Spacey's attitude and antics in real life. And so for me, it's, it's, it is a little hard today to, to differentiate it. And I think for me personally, it does have a negative impact on the film. I, I can't watch the movie the same way I did 15 years ago. Well, I think, I think it definitely, it definitely tints it, but I don't think it, it ruins it. Yeah, I think, I think, I think that's fair to say, but you cannot watch it now without at least thinking about it. You know. Oh yeah, it it definitely is something that 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 pops into your mind because it's it's something that's just a reality. Um, so, but if if the Kevin Space thing was so known in Hollywood, which they kind of act like it is, do you think that Alan Ball wrote that scene where it looks like he's like blowing him? Uh, do you think he wrote that in as like a like a like a wink to like yeah, like this guy's actually a creep kind of thing? Is that a conspiracy theory we could talk about? <laughs> Or is that too a little bit too far fetched? That might be a little too far fetched. I can see it though. Um, before we move off of this topic, Zach, I have a question for you. Um, do you think um, Kevin Spacey ever gets a uh, a redemption arc in real life moving forward? Absolutely not. Not not one that's taken seriously. And and I think it's it's a mixture of you know what 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 was alleged by you know. Anthony Rapp, right? That was the actor. Yep. But also, again, the 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 uh, the way that Kevin Spacey handled it by instead of owning up to it, instead of apologizing for it, he said, "Well, I'm gay." And basically, the the assumption was, uh, or at least the line of logic was, "Well, because I'm gay, this this behavior was acceptable." Or at least that's the way that people read his his excuse. And it was that 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 was a pretty terrible uh, PR moment in terms of optics. And uh, I don't think he ever gets redemption again. Well, the, the even worse one was when he went back into character as Frank Underwood. And, oh yeah, like yeah, saying about that was how, terrible too. How you you want me back and all that stuff like that. But that was that was the most head scratching move I've ever seen. Like. Uh, I don't know who who could have ever advised him to do that. Maybe or Mel maybe Gibson. Maybe that's just his, his, his ego. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, he, see, he, Mel Gibson's come back. I mean, that that's something, well, he right? clearly is in your number one movie of the year. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe. Actually, I think it's it is kind of similar to Louis C.K. because Louis C.K. also was like a troll to fans to in to in some respect. Um, but uh, it's it's hard to imagine Kevin Spacey ever having a serious comeback. Okay, that's interesting. Okay, so we have any more flaws and conspiracy theories? I have a couple that I could say. Um, go for it. Yeah, go for it. Okay, one flaw. It's very taken a lot less seriously than the one we just talked about. But uh, it's that <laughs> I think Kevin Spacey is clearly in shape. And, like, when he yeah. gets naked in his garage, he's just sticking out his stomach. And it looks really bad. Yeah. Like, I think that's one of the biggest flaws in the movie. I'm like, there's no way. He's not fat. He doesn't have to lose a bunch of weight. He's obviously in shape. Another one is there's no way Angela's actually a virgin. And but one thing I need to figure I I, I want to know why we actually want to trust Colonel Frank Fitz because <laughs> like there 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 we need more backstory about his wife and like why she's like catatonic or whatever. Yes. And like there 
and there's a reason why we never suspect him as the one that killed Lester. Like, everyone else has has motive, too, but he obviously has motive, and he has his clear homophobia, but I don't, like, there's, I've never thought, watching that movie, that, that it, you ever feel like he is actually the one that's gonna pull the trigger, even though he's got, like, a plethora of guns, and he was in the military, but that also leads me to the fact that I don't think that he actually would have shot him from point-blank range. He would have been, like, a true soldier. He would have gotten in full-dress uniform, and he would have gotten a rifle and sniped him from, like, down the street or something. General Hummel style? In in a full uniform? That is exactly what he would have done. I don't think he would have actually, like, snuck into his house from behind and shot him in the back of the head. I think that that's a really strange move for a guy of his, like, ego and stature. Um, looking at it, looking at it, um, after watching it and knowing how it ends, um, I, I see what you're saying, because I, I totally saw it coming this time because of, of, like, how you view a scene like, like I mentioned before, the scene with him and his son when he comes bursting in there of how he's talking about, it. and, and, and I, I really saw this movie this time as, uh, as a contrast between those that are are out to control their narrative and those that are letting letting their letting their story just be what it what it's going to be and and you have you have ones like like Ricky and what Lester ends up becoming as people who are just going to be who they are no matter what and then you have people like Carolyn and like Colonel Fitz and, and Angela that are trying to control who they are publicly, even though what, even though privately it's, it's eating them alive. And so uh, looking at it in that sense, it totally made sense for him to lash out like this in a similar way. Ricky lashed out when someone made fun of his hair. It's like, I'm not going to be publicly humiliated in this way, or even privately humiliated in this way, and I have to act out violently against them. But I still feel like it's leading you to everybody else's motives are much more clear. Like, Carolyn's on the verge of, like, a breakdown, and, like, her whole life's falling apart, and she has a gun, and she just learned how to use it. And then, like, Mm -hmm. his daughter's talking about killing killing him. And uh, one girl almost just got raped by him, or whatever. It's like, that. all these things are way more serious than, like, his just, like, kind of, like, weird head thing that he's going in at the time. And he... But there's a reason why I want to trust him, and I don't understand what it is. Or maybe that's just me, maybe I'm crazy. I think that could be another dated thing about this movie, too, is the fact that he is a tragically closeted character. And, you know, the, the, the tragic gay archetype was, like, big up until the 90s, and then in the 2000s, it, I think, fortunately sort of disappeared from Hollywood, because I think it's a pretty hurtful stereotype. So I think the, I mean, maybe they would have kept some aspect to the character or his action of killing Lester the same, but the shame of it, I think, would have been refitted in 2019 in a different context. Because at this point, that's sort of a, I think that's a that's a trope. That's a cliche at this point. One one thing along that line, though, that I will say about this movie is, um, it does a very good job, I think, of the gyms not falling into those stereotypes at all. True. I I think I think it 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 lets them be very real, believable characters. Uh, however, Colonel Fitz can't help but see them 
immediately as a stereotype as soon as he has the label to put on them. Well, didn't Alan Ball say something like that he wanted to make the gyms the only, like, functional people in the neighborhood, like, the only the, the most normal characters in the movie? I mean, that was, like, a concerted effort on his part. In fact, I, I, if I remember correctly, the gyms had a more prominent role in earlier drafts of the screenplay, which would have been interesting to see. I'm yeah, not sure how they would have come into it. That would have been... I don't know either, but apparently they were there. Okay, well, one thing I was going to say was I don't really understand... The, the, the Burnhams appear to be pretty well off, but I'm not really sure where they have all this money like to afford a $4,000 Italian leather sofa. Like, um, Lester only makes $60,000 a year because we hear that that's the amount of money he gets on his severance package. And Carolyn is clearly struggling as a real estate agent. I mean, she's not selling houses and she's, you know, not even in the same league as the Kings. And it's also implied that she only fairly recently got her license, too, because that's what Lester says is he supported her while she got her license. So where are they getting all this money? Well, they don't have that much money. They would drive, They have one car. No, they have two cars. Let's two. Yeah, let, but I mean, and one of their cars is a Mercedes. It seems like well, they have a lot of money. Well, I mean, but I mean, like Angela says, what a phony. Yeah, like, she, she spends all her money on stuff, and that's what he says. He's like, this is all just stuff, like, because that's all they have. They don't have an actual life or any happiness. They just have stuff. Like, you can, you can, if you have, make $60,000 a year, you can have a lot of cool shit, but it, I mean, it doesn't actually have to mean anything. Well, sure, $60,000 in, in 1999, I'm sure, went a, a lot further away. I'm just, I'm just saying, I, I don't think they're quite as well off as the movie from a practical standpoint, I don't know where they have all this money, it, it, but whatever. I think it might be another uh, another um, sign of it being a little dated, because I feel like in the '90s you yeah. could you could get away with having some of that extravagant stuff without necessarily being super well off, and that's just kind of that was a result of that culture. Yeah. Another flaw I was going to bring up, and this really impacted the way I felt about this character, and I mentioned it already, but Ricky Fitz says he has $40,000. So why is he living with his parents? Why is he enduring the the suffering of living under this regime, this deranged regime of Colonel Fitz? I mean, this, you know, clearly at any point he's ready to, you know, get out. He's 18 years old. Like, why is he staying at the house? Why does he still he, live there? He likes money. And, and how does he? He's, sa- he's making all this money because he doesn't have to pay for anything. But how and... could he be making money? They're, they just moved there. For, they're they were in a different city, and I know he says that he has those connections with the drug dealers in New York. But I just I don't I don't know how he's already why got he a hookup where that he's selling to the the lady at the pediatrician's office. I, I don't know. He's he's obviously making a lot of money. They just moved. He's still in high school, and he and yeah, he could leave at any time. But he had a pretty good thing going where his father. Co- kind of trusted him to the point that yeah i'm gonna give you this cup like and you could give it to me in the morning i don't care like i mean he he, he was not under no pressure until he but, fell in love like but why would he you know, subject himself to that he could live by himself he could drop out of high school like there's no there's no he didn't have any pressure reason. at the time well th- but there's no earthly reason why he would stay at the house now he does say later in the movie that he like respects his dad and maybe he you know maybe he cares about his parents but like to suffer the abuse, I mean, he's beaten up twice in this movie. Like, I and and you know, and he re- infers that there's another time when he was beat beat up too when he was 15 years old. Like, I don't know why he stays with his parents. It, maybe it doesn't just, make sense. Maybe it's to protect his mom. Possibly, but yeah, I, I was gonna say there's there's two things. One, I I think there, it, it feels like a relationship, even though he has all this other stuff going on. It feels like such a such an oppressive relationship with his dad that he that he doesn't feel like he can leave at that point. 
Um, and two, he doesn't leave because of his mom. Well, and, and and in the movie, he also doesn't leave because of Jane. I mean, he's infatuated with Jane at a certain point too. But right, I just I don't know. It it was just it was just a strange sort of flaw, and it and it it coattailed a little bit with one of my conspiracy theories, which is that you know the mom in this movie, Allison Janney, is clearly comatose. She's on something. Is Ricky supplying his mom with drugs? I don't think mm. he sells anything but weed. I don't know, forty thousand dollars based just on weed or that g13 crap that was genetically engineered by the government i mean <laughs> that's it too, it's a lot too of grand for that little bag but yeah i mean but i mean weed was not legal at the time that was a different world <laughs> another way the movie's dated and then and then maybe another thing about ricky fitz money and then I'll, I'll get off the subject but like okay so ricky fitz has all this money but he always talks about how like he doesn't he doesn't always need to accept people's money like he he accepts things in trade like the locksmith who gives him the lock and then the the nurse who gives him the urine and then and then even to lester he says like i know you're good for you You don't need to give me money now like how is he collecting all this money if he's just telling people "Ah, that's okay you can pay me whenever or pay me back in trade because those people are buying the snickle fritz as they call it in pineapple express I don't know, like, like it's the people that, that the, the doctors and the people, like, I don't know, the people related to pediatrician's office, he said he cuts her a deal, it can't be on the, on the cheap shit, it's gotta be on the, on the G13 stuff, you know, that, that's where he makes his money. I'm not sure where he gets it or anything, I mean, we never see his, him outside of the house or at school or in the car, you know. So does he, like, oh. pay someone to collect? Like, maybe as a bounty hunter or something. I don't know how he has so many connections if they just moved to town. Well, it depends yeah, on how far I mean. they move from. And and he has these yeah. connections to drug dealers in New York, like like you know what is this like the hobo code in Mad Men, like that you know they can go from town to town and like there's you know some relationships that he has with these strangers. I don't know. It just seemed a little odd to me. Didn't didn't really quite fit. And it also didn't help that Wes Bentley's not a good actor. <laughs> I would say, thanks for that, Zach. You're welcome. I, I would say I, I would say the biggest mystery in this movie, and and one of the things that bothers me most is how it never explains uh, what is going on with Mrs. Fitz, what is going on with Barbara, why is she the way she is, and it never explains it, and it just kind of accepts it for what it is. But I think that that is something that it didn't even need to necessarily be explored that much. But just mentioned kind of offhandedly of why is she, why is she how she is? Has she always been that way? Has did Colonel Fitz do something to make her that way? I, I it it's that could be such where the mystery. mental illness comes from that made Ricky the way he is. I don't know. I mean, yeah. Well, I Sam Mendes I think mentioned somewhere that there was originally more dialogue with that character that he cut out or scenes that he cut out with her. But I don't know. I th- I think it's essentially you, you get a you get a ballpark idea of kind of what's going on with her. I mean, she's obviously a victim of emotional or physical abuse from uh, an abusive husband, and I don't know whether it's the result of you know self medicating or some kind of emotional trauma. But you know, she's clearly not with it. So I, I don't really mind that much. I, I think the movie shows enough of, of her that we, we don't really need to know anymore. I think she's, you know, fairly self-explanatory. But I do want to know if she's buying son- drugs from her son. That would explain more. That would also explain why he doesn't leave the house, because if she's his biggest client. <laughs> she's got, she's, she's loaded. That's how they move into that neighborhood. <laughs> yes, exactly. 
She's got all the money. All right. Uh, are we are we ready to move into uh, into MVP and wrap this up? Well, we do have yeah, the I... biggest stickman. Oh, stickman! Well, stickman and who Nick Cage would play? Oh yes, obviously. Okay. Um, which one do we, which one do we want to do first? Uh, stickman. Stickman. Okay. Um. Oh, that this is. I'm I'm gonna go with Buddy the King Kane. Good one. Yeah, I don't he, think there's another answer. Yeah. Well, the other answer I, I think would be uh, what's his name from from Lester's office that paid the hooker. Yeah, that's who I was gonna go with, Craig. Yeah, yeah. Because you that's paid, the only other pay one. Pay for sex to make you a stick man. <laughs> 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 that's a terrible answer. I would say Lester before that guy. Ouch. Uh, but at least he's getting it in. Lester wasn't getting it in. But well, yeah, it's got it's got to be Buddy. It's got to be the king. I mean, they call him the king for for a reason. The royal treatment. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then uh, who would Nicolas Cage play? I think I think the answer is the same. I think he'd play Buddy Kane. He has to. Yeah, I think Buddy or Lester. I I could see him playing Lester. It'd be a little weird. It would be more of the second half of the movie that he would really fit into it. But yeah, Buddy would be a, a great Nick Cage '90s role. I I could see him as one of the gyms. <laughs> Why? Or maybe I don't know. maybe he could pull like a, a Donald and Charlie Kaufman and be twins and also the gyms. That that would be like Jim One and Jim Two. You know, one would be slightly balding and hunched over. The other one would look slightly more confident. I think if you go back and do like '80s Nick Cage, he could be Ricky. Yes. Oh, I like that. Like, like, like a uh, Birdie, or uh, yeah, I like racing, it. Like, like Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Yeah, Bracing the Moon or Peggy Sue Got Married. Nicholas Cage. I like it. I oh, man, that's it. That's who we would recast as Ricky Fitz, young Nicholas Cage. Or or, or uh, Wild at Heart, Nick Cage. Yes. There you go. I like it. That that because he he's kind of he feels kind of sedated in that movie to begin with playing sailor that's getting a little old though it's a little old but that that type of performance i could see it can i mention one more thing that was sort of a conspiracy theory but i just want to throw out there i'm really uh, if you must I, I i i must i'm really fascinated by mr smiley's because their food looks really gross like okay there's something called a big barn burger which is what lester gets <laughs> And they're trying to push the new egg and bacon fajita, which is for $1.29, which sounds pretty disgusting. That, that sounds awesome at a fast food place, a bacon and egg fajita. Like, well, and it, the, cost is, the cost is pretty reasonable. And actually, it's also pretty reasonable because Carolyn and Buddy get like a burger, fries, and a shake, and they both get them, and the total's like $7.50. So it's it's like super cheap, and I guess it's 1999. But I guess like another reason I wanted to bring this up is like this is maybe a flaw in the movie. Like if Lester's trying to really trying to lose weight, why is he eating at Mr. Smiley's? But I guess it's after he's smoked, and maybe he's looking. He's got the munchies or something. He's got the munchies. Yeah, yeah that he's might got be the it. munchies. He just quit his job and got full severance for a year. I want. He's gonna go celebrate. I want to know what's in a big barn burger and the Smiley sauce. It's probably Thousand Island dressing. <laughs> probably. 
Uh, all right. Uh, last category, MVP? Yep. MVP. MVP. What do you guys think? For me, it's absolutely Alan Ball. I don't know how this movie ever would get written without him. The, the comedy and drama mix, the family dynamic stuff, how every everything about it could be expanded into like a a series how every character i feel like i could spend entire episodes with them and not have a problem with it like there's a reason why six feet under and true blood were so popular is because he is so good at expanding these like seemingly some like small stories into something really big and i don't know how this movie ever works without him actually writing it that is not a surprising answer at all for me todd thank you even though it was not a compliment (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna go next uh i'm gonna go mvp i don't know if i necessarily necessarily believe it but it's the one main character we haven't really talked at all about and that's annette benning as carolyn uh we've kind of referenced how good she is but really she is so good in this movie and it and it just the this most recent time i watched it it just shone through even more than than ever before um Kevin Spacey's performance as Lester is so much elevated by what Annette Bening does as Carolyn as it plays this perfect foil to what he is. Um, she's all about order, she's all about appearance, she's all what what is what's the saying if you want to if you want to have success you must always appear to uh, to be successful or whatever the saying is and she embodies that fully. Um and and it it it's the best that net bending has ever been i think and i i think she we'd mentioned how she has a very high war and i think absolutely she does and she makes everyone else around her better um which might be why she didn't win because she ends up getting lost in it because of how she just elevates everyone else's performance well and she was going up against like one of the all-time transformation performances ever so. well yeah there's that too but yeah all right zach uh my mvp for the movie is conrad hall because i watched a good deal of this movie not uh with, with the other day with the sound off because i was doing something else and this is a really visual movie um Maybe it helps that I've seen this movie about 50 times, but I would challenge anyone to watch this movie with the soundtrack off, and you can absolutely tell the story, even if you've never seen it before. Um, I mean, that's also a compliment to the acting, too, but like the way that Conrad Hall frames the shots is just really wonderful. The cinematography is great in it. If you listen to some of the commentaries, Sam Mendes talks about how a lot of the day scenes, even at like Mr. Smiley's, were for some reason lit at night. I'm not really sure why, but they just look pretty incredible. Um, the, the visual style of the movie really holds up uh, quite well. It's also one of the reasons why this movie, this movie has, coming from someone who has a degree in film, you know, capital D degree, oh, you know, so, so uh, superfluous. Like, this is, this has to be one of the most overstudied, over um, interpreted movies for like freshman undergraduate college students you know this is like this this is like the the cliched you know six page final paper from your intro to film class is a visual analysis of american beauty because it is just so rife with interpretation it's actually one of the movies one of the reasons i think this movie is dated a little bit because if you 
seeing this movie for the first time when you're 16 years old, it's like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. And visually, there's so much going on. Um, and I think that's just a testament to Conrad Hall. So even though it's, you know, it's a little excessive for me because I've had to read those papers over and over again, the visual qualities of this movie still hold up really well. And Conrad Hall, like Sam Mendes said in his acceptance speech, is an artist. So he's the real force behind this movie, especially given the fact that this was Sam Mendes' first movie and he came from theater. All right. So let's wrap up our podcast with our quote of the day. Uh, I'm going to go first. My quote is uh, is when um, it's when Carolyn is uh, first, or not quite first, but first in the movie, introducing uh, Lester to the king. And uh, she introduces him, and he says, It's a pleasure, and Lester says, Oh, we've met before, actually. This, la- this thing last year, Christmas at the Sheraton. He goes, oh, yeah, yes. He goes, it's okay. I wouldn't remember me either. And it's just one of those great lines that only only Kevin Spacey and, and Jack Lemmon could, uh, could deliver in, in such a perfect way. But, uh, yeah, I wouldn't remember me either. And then there's a so great pay- payoff to that line when he says later, you know, <laughs> we've met before, but something tells me you're going to remember me this time. You're going to remember me this time, yeah. <laughs> And then he keeps reading off, like, what they ordered. <laughs> uh-huh. So, awesome. All right, uh, Zach, why don't you go next? All right, well, um, mine comes from uh, Lester's uh, letter that he writes to the management, and he says, My job consists of basically masking my contempt for the assholes in charge and at least once a day retiring to the men's room so I can jerk off while I fantasize about a life that doesn't so closely resemble hell. And uh, I feel that way about this podcast sometimes. Especially when we're defending Wes Bentley's um, acting chops. I also love that he's mouthing the words when he's reading it. To oh him. yeah, like he, he's like totally giving him a pat on the himself, a pat on the back. Like, oh yeah, it, 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 that was my it's crowning the achievement. Club. <laughs> yeah, pat in the arm. All right, Todd. All right, this is a uh, part of Kevin Spacey's uh, narration. At one point, he says. It's a great thing when you realize you still have the ability to surprise yourself. And I feel like that about this podcast sometimes. <laughs> I feel like sometimes I'm like, wow, they could win a lot better than I thought it was going to. Yeah, or like when you pick Alan Ball as your MVP. That, that was not surprising. Well, okay. It was obvious. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you guys so much for listening uh, to our podcast. Uh, hopefully this uh, gave you some insight into this movie. Uh, and uh, hopefully you haven't gotten to the end of this without stopping and uh, going and watching it if you haven't seen it before. Uh, we'll be back uh, with uh, another podcast next week. Uh, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review in- on iTunes. And we will catch you then. Until then, have fun watching movies. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.